With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to episode 130 of the Golf Unfiltered podcast. I'm your host as always, Adam, from GolfUnfiltered.com. You can follow me on Twitter at GolfUnfiltered. Send me an email, GolfUnfiltered at gmail.com. Go ahead and find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat. And folks, today, it is just myself, it's me and you, and it's a very special episode of the Golf Unfiltered podcast because I am answering listener questions, specifically those submitted to the THP forum, the Hackers Paradise member forum, to a thread that I started, Ask Me Anything, which you all definitely asked me anything you wanted. (laughs) So we've got quite a uh, plethora and mixture of different questions that I'm going to get to, and here's the way that this is going to work. I will do my best to answer most of these questions, and I'm going to keep this thread alive and well, just in case you wanted to ask a future question that I will answer on another podcast. So uh, we've got quite a few questions here that I'm going to take a look at. I have only uh, actually read through these once, I'll be honest with you guys, and so you're going to be getting the uh, unrehearsed reaction to some of these, because I know that a few more have been posted since I last looked at the uh, at the website here. So... Without much further ado, I'm going to apologize in advance if I say something ridiculous, but some of these questions are uh, a little out there. So, all right, we're going to start right at the top here, folks, and this is from member Icy Shanks. Where do you feel there is a gap in golf equipment for the regular golfer? And that's a great question, Icy Shanks, and as uh, listeners of this podcast know, I talk a lot about golf equipment. I talk a lot about custom fitting, and as far as gaps in golf equipment for the regular golfer... Not too long ago, I spoke to uh, John Ray from uh, Cleveland Golf. He's their uh, wedge guru out there. And one of the biggest gaps that John talked a little bit about was the uh, gap in people getting fit for their wedges. Now, I know I talk a lot about getting fit. You guys are probably sick of me talking about that, but I'm going to continue to talk about it because it is so vitally important. And the wedge game is one that is most most overlooked, I would say, and I believe John would agree if I remember our conversation right. Regular golfers typically go into a PGA Superstore, brick-and-mortar golf shop, maybe their their local country club, and they'll buy a wedge just off the rack without making any adjustments to it, without really even knowing what loft or lie or anything like that that they need. Chances are you probably played one wedge throughout your life. Chances are it may have been a 56-degree sand wedge, for example. And so for the rest of your golf playing career, you're just going to play a 56-degree sand wedge. You don't know if you could benefit more from a 55-degree or even a 57-degree. Myself, I uh, have had the opportunity to get fit for my entire bag. And I actually play play three wedges, well, four, counting my my pitching wedge. I have a 51-degree gap wedge, a 55-degree sand wedge, and then a 59-degree lob wedge which I sometimes swap out for a uh, 58 degree sure out when I'm not really feeling that great in the bunkers, which is most of the time. So 
I think uh, Icy Shanks, that's really the biggest gap, is just going out and understanding what type of wedges you need for your game. You know, don't just go and buy off the rack, and if you do go and purchase something from a store, at least get it fit. At least go and get them bent to what you need. I mean, it's not that tough. Most wedges are able to be bent. There are some that are cast that you really can't do that with, but that's uh, that's probably the biggest gap that I'm aware of. Here's a uh, question from the... Uh, the uh, the budget golf and thp championship one, one half of the winners here jd jd tox i gotta get that name right if i'm gonna say this what is the answer to the future of the game longer golf courses or more restrictions on equipment Ooh. well another tough question there um you know there buddy i i would have to say longer golf courses is not the answer uh, we're seeing that now we're seeing uh, U.S. Open tracks such as Aaron Hills that could have easily been pushed to about 8,000 yards. I think the longest it played was almost 7,900. And I just don't feel that that's the way to go. I mean, players these days are working out more. They're stronger. They're bigger. They can hit the ball further. But I just I don't feel like you need to make an extremely long golf course for it to be difficult and and guests on this show have talked about that i've spoken to quite a few people i talked to kyle thompson the pga tour player who had said basically the same thing that he prefers shorter courses because they can be more difficult you you don't have to have an eight thousand yard golf course in order to uh you know test these guys out there now for the regular joe schmo like myself i actually went and played golf today at ravislow uh, which is a uh, a golf course in homewood illinois Um, i played terrible My swing just was all over the place, but aside from that, even if I did hit the ball well in a few holes, I did manage to, to, you know, make par, but that was a tough course, and it was all about just bunker placement and dog legs and tree-lined fairways, and it was just really difficult. The rough was long. I mean, and I think that thing probably was at 6,700 yards that I played it at, me and my buddy, and that was from the back. I mean, you don't need a long course in order to to really protect the game. And I think what we risk if we continue to do this, if we continue to just make the the classic courses longer, and I know this is kind of a tired argument, but you're going to lose just what those courses are. You're going to lose what they were meant to be. I mean, they've just purchased more land across the street at Augusta National, for crying out loud. I mean, pretty soon, that's going to be a a golf course that we don't recognize anymore. I don't care how many azaleas you put on the fairways. Tonight's beer of choice is, again, Heineken. It's the Old Faithful. So I would say um, adding restrictions to equipment, at least for the pros, is the way we should go. I know that's not a very popular opinion. I don't even know what that would look like. Maybe it's just rolling back the golf ball for those guys. I mean, there's no reason these guys need to carry the ball 350 yards, which, you know, that's not happening. I'm, I'm exaggerating, I hope. I don't remember anyone carrying anything 350 yards. But you know my point. I mean, these guys are just hitting obscene obscene driving lengths and you just you don't have to do that because then what it does also is it kind of just cannibalizes the rest of the field you know there's some great players out there that really have you know a few years left in them such as Zach Johnson you know some of the other shorter hitters that would really benefit and their careers would be you know a little bit longer if we just stopped pushing these these golf courses we're pushing them out of the game just by making the golf courses bigger. I mean, that's really not what it's supposed to happen, right? I mean, you're supposed to lose to the next guys coming up from you, and I'm I'm sure that these young guys, as we all would agree, 
these young guys can certainly uh, beat the likes of Zach Johnson, no offense, Zach, <laughs> um, on their own merits. You don't want to just take somebody out of the tournament right away just because the, the, the course is so long. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. Thanks for the question, J.D. All right, we got one here from Nate talking about release release cycles. Why does everyone bitch and moan about release cycles? What's the true story? That's a good question again, Nate. Um, you know, I've heard all sorts of arguments on this. Um, I've, I've heard both sides of the story. Um, you know, uh, JB, actually, uh, he and I talked a little bit about this, I believe, a couple episodes ago. Um, one theory, Nate, is that golf companies want to hit every pricing demographic that they can. And so they are going to offer newer, shinier drivers, for example, uh, as often as they can in order to catch the demographics that they want or to hit those demographics, those golfers, that maybe passed up a release cycle previously. So think of it this way. Let's say that you're playing a, I'm going to pick on Callaway. I love Callaway. And so guys, if you're listening, I'm not trying to pick on you, but you um, are just the first name that popped in my mind. If Callaway releases a great big Bertha Epic and a year later they release whatever their next driver is going to be and you're sitting at home and you've got, oh, I don't know. Let's say that you've got like an X hot or you've got a, a fusion driver sitting in your bag right now and and you were all excited about the Epic, and as well you should be. It's the club that I play as well. It's the number one selling driver in golf. Maybe you wanted to, uh, you know, drop the $600 or whatever it is for a new Epic. But you know a year later you're going to have an option of a different driver, perhaps one that's going to be longer than the Epic. You know, whatever the case might be. So do you wait, and do you buy that that? yet to be released driver when it comes out or do you wait for that driver to be released so that the epic comes out comes down in price now i don't know if that's going to happen but the fact of the matter is is that you're a golfer in a specific demographic you have a two three four i don't even know how old the fusion driver is but you've got a older driver that you could upgrade if you get the epic that's probably a couple drivers later Think of along the lines of like iPhones as well. If you're sitting there with an iPhone 5 and the iPhone 8 just came out, you're going to see a substantial difference in performance from one to the other. The same can be said for a lot of drivers and, and irons or any golf club that you want to think of. The point being, though, is there's always going to be somebody who's in the cycle ahead of you. For every iPhone 5 owner, there's going to be an iPhone, iPhone, uh, iPhone 6 owner. And there's going to be an iPhone 6S owner. And there's going to be, you know, like an iPhone 7 owner. So the iPhone 7 owner might not be as inclined to upgrade when, you know, as compared to the iPhone 5 owner. You still with me? So that's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is these these companies are are planning and they're doing research and development three, four years ahead of what's currently on the market. I guarantee you that the folks at Callaway have a driver or two, hell, even maybe three, that they're already planning to release within the next five years. They've, they've got this planned out. 
John Ray at Cleveland, again, to reference him, he, he said as much in his book, The Wedge. They do it for wedges at Cleveland. They do it for irons anywhere else, I believe. And if certainly they do it for drivers at Callaway, TaylorMade, anywhere else. So they need to get these out in order for, one, to stay for them to stay ahead of the competition, and for two, to keep you hooked with their, their brand loyalty. They want you to be a brand loyalist. Now, I'm sure there's other arguments out there. I personally think it's a huge risk to operate at that on, on that method. I mean, you talk to any local golf club pro or you talk to anyone who's got a, a golf shop that they're trying to sell inventory, they're trying to move inventory. Think Golf, golf Galaxy. Think the now-defunct Golfsmith. They were getting pummeled by excessive inventory of one type of driver being cannibalized by the next release. They couldn't get rid of those drivers because everyone said, well, why would I buy this if I can just wait a couple months and get the next one? And I'm sorry, TaylorMade was very bad at that. They released, remember the whole jet speed thing or the sliders? I think it was the jet speed were the ones that were released, what, within three months, three or four months of one another? Holy cow. So you got two different viewpoints. You've got the viewpoint of the manufacturer and you've got the viewpoint of the person trying to move the product. That's wasteful. You're wasting inventory. I don't think it's a great method. I've not seen any numbers. But as somebody who deals with process improvement and as somebody who deals with trying to eliminate waste in processes, especially in product delivery, it just makes me roll my eyes. I, I just don't get it. But those are the arguments that I've heard. So, I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer. Personally, I would like to sit down and talk to somebody in one of these manufacturers and, uh, you know, map this out. All right. Thanks for the question, Nate. Here's one from uh, Blake Hall. A large equipment company comes to you and gives you access to nearly unlimited budget and their entire R&D staff. Ooh, that sounds fun. You have two years to work on a product and bring it to market. What type of thing do you work on and which company would you want to work with? That is a very thoughtful question. Thank you, Blake Shaw, or uh, Blake Hall. Sorry, reading is a skill. Um, wow, two years to work on something with with just basically a blank check. My entire R and D staff. Wow. Well, I would probably want to design. Hmm, that's a really good question. You know, I'm not really big on adjustable drivers, and I'll tell you why here when I get to another question down in this thread, but. You know, I, I don't mind companies that are still releasing non-adjustable drivers, fixed drivers, I guess we'll call them. I don't know what the right term is, but I would probably want to work with an R&D staff. You know what? I take that back. I was going to go down the driver path, but instead, I want to work with a, with a, a company to develop a hybrid that is as versatile as a fairway would off the tee but still as forgiving out of the rough as, as hybrids typically are, but in a smaller head shape. Uh, I am a guy that really does not like the look of a three-wood, like a typical regular size head three-wood. It just looks too big. I don't, I don't like hitting that off the ground. I can, it's fine off the tee, whatever, but I, I carry two hybrids and a driver for my, my woods. And I'll tell you what, I mean, I have yet to find 
a hybrid, a fitting hybrid replacement for that gap between my driver and what would be my uh, three iron. So whatever it was in there, right now I've got a Titleist 915H that fits pretty well. It's 18 degrees. It's it's right there in between that gap, and I hit it about 220 when I hit it well. Um, but you know, I just I feel like I don't get a lot out of it all the time, and and it's certainly. Uh, you know, maybe it's a shaft thing. I don't know, but I feel that there's got to be something to something to be done. There's still room for design in the hybrid, and I think most players would really benefit from that. Uh, you know, heck, I would even drop my four iron if I could find, uh, you know, a hybrid that I really like that would, uh, you know, fit in that yardage gap there. You know, that's the other thing that I typically find with hybrids, and so maybe that's where I would go with the, uh, you know, the two year blank check from R and D. You know, I I get just spotty distances. I don't have a lot of distance control with hybrids. You know, uh, long and short dispersion that is. So I don't know if anyone else is like that. I I tend to kind of know how long it's going to f- fly, but you know that's that's difficult. And as far as a company I'd want to work with, I mean Callaway, in my opinion, makes the best woods out there. Period. I mean, if they could do that with uh, you know, they're Callaway Apex hybrids. My buddy, who I actually played with today, has two of them, and he pounds those. I mean, those are great clubs. Um, you know, I I wouldn't mind talk, sitting down and talking with them. That'd be cool. You know, can they design a uh, golf unfiltered hybrid? <laughs> it's just going to be bad golf thoughts written down the shaft. Uh, yeah, that would be fun. But thanks for the question. That that was a good one. It made me think. Um, Rustifer. Our buddy Russ, uh, why isn't your wife on the show more often? That's a good question, and I know I say this a lot, but we are going to get Kristen back on the show. I know you guys really liked uh, the most recent episode we did with her, and we re- we uh, previewed the U.S. Open, I believe it was. Um, no, it was actually before that, now that I think of it. Um, yeah, it's been a while since we've had her on, but we'll definitely get her back on here. Uh, thanks for, for the question there, Russ. Uh, scrap Iron. Did you ship my wedge? Yes, we did. Uh, Scrap was... If you're the guy that I'm thinking of, you're the guy that won the uh, the CBX wedge uh, in our contest uh, the last time JB was on the show. So congratulations, sir. Um, Most useful piece of advice you have received from an instructor about about your swing? Um, Well, I've always uh, tended to lose the golf club um, up at the top way past parallel, almost to the point where I was like re-gripping the club as the club head kind of fell behind my shoulders, if you guys can picture that. Think like John Daly, but not to that extreme. Um, uh, there's an instructor at Cantini Golf Club uh, here in Illinois by the name of Greg Barisel. Um He really helped me out with truly understanding where my club head is throughout my backswing. So what felt like I was only taking a, a half swing, and I'm sure many of you can relate to this. What felt like a half swing actually meant that the club head was right short of parallel, where I needed to be, which did two things. It helped me gain a lot of control with my swing overall, and it really just helped me understand where my club head is throughout the swing so that I can adjust for shorter shots. And so I would say that that's probably recently uh, the most uh, important piece of advice I've been given, the most useful I feel that uh, there's probably some other tips when I was first learning the game 20 years ago or so that I could probably throw in. Um, I still remember uh, on the backswing, uh, act like you're shaking someone's hand 
to the side of you. I think that's like an old Greg Norman tip. I'm sure others have come up with that. Maybe a Hogan uh, tip. Actually, I think that was mentioned in the five lessons, if I remember right. Um, that's another good one. I still, you know, go back to that from time to time. So, all right, what else we got here? We got one here from Mark M seven seven eight. Why is it so hard to get an unbiased golf ball fitting? Um, you know, I, I don't. I wouldn't say that it's unbiased. Hmm. Take that back. I wouldn't say that it's that, that most golf ball fittings are biased. Um, it's kind of hard not to be though. I guess now that I think of it, I mean, depending on where you go, like Bridgestone, they've got their their ball fitting app that you can download, and of course they're going to fit you to their brand. I mean, it's their app. But you know, you know, Mark, I'd have to get more context around that question because I've not actually seen, aside from a very brand specific ball fitting system, I've not seen any bias in uh, golf ball fitting. I think, you know, people are going to rely most on the brands that, you know, the, the top brands, Titleist, Srixon, Callaway, you know, I'm probably forgetting a few TaylorMade Project A, you know, a few others, um, Bridgestone. Uh, those are the big heavy hitters. I mean, and we know that there are a ton of golf balls uh, out there. I just tested... Uh, and I just put a, a review up on the site for uh, Wire Golf Balls, W-Y-R-E. They are German-based. German they are from Germany. They are not currently available in the United States. I hope that they will be soon because those are fantastic golf balls. I tried their Titan today. I played like hot garbage, but those were great golf balls. And I will say this right now. I will be surprised if they don't get a little heat from Titleist. I mean, these things are great um, they feel great. They performed even better. Um, they've got a cool little logo about them. You know, I don't know much about patents. We had a patent lawyer on a couple episodes ago, and Derek would certainly know more than I. But I tell you what, if these things make it stateside, there's going to be some uh, there's going to be some discussions. <laughs> there's going to be some phone calls and emails going around. I'm sure. But uh, yeah, Mark. Um, if you're listening, go ahead and uh, reply in the thread with some more context on your question. I'll be uh, more than happy to get back to it. Uh, here's one from Christopher Key. Why do urethane golf balls with seams still exist? Great question. Not sure. Um, I don't know too much about the golf ball manufacturing process, but I do know that uh, you could either mold one or you could basically put two pieces and glue them together. Together. Um, I'm looking at a polyurethane or a urethane-covered golf ball right now, and I'm trying to look for the seam. Is there one on here? I don't see one right away. But I, I can Oh, there it is. I actually see it now. Well, that look, well, check that out. Huh. Yeah, I don't know. I, I imagine it has to do with uh, the uh, manufacturing process that the company prefers. I'm sure there's a cost element to it. I'm sure there's, you know, patent elements and all that fun stuff to there, Chris. But... Uh, Good question. Thank you. I'll try to do a little bit more research on that. And, and listeners, if you're listening to this and you're a member of the forum and you know an answer, or if you want to contribute a little bit and add on or just completely disagree with what I'm saying, uh, go ahead and post in that thread as well. I'd love to hear the discussion. All right, we got a few more here. Uh, oh, this is a good one. It's a two-parter. Our buddy Mancest. First question, who is your favorite guest that talked about incest during the podcast? <laughs> 
Um, that would be, um, oh God, I was going to go, <laughs> I was just going to name any tour pro, but it would probably get me in trouble. Uh, you, sir, you, you are the best. Okay. Second question here. Uh, when are you going to do an iron wedge fitting? The discussion with the driver fitting has been fascinating. So curious when you will be doing a fitting for other parts of the bag. Uh, good question. As I mentioned earlier, I've actually have been fit for both irons and wedges. Uh, last year, I think, was it? Maybe 2015, I actually went to Club Champion uh, and got fitted for my irons and my wedges. I play the Mira MB001s, as I've talked about a few times, as well as the Mira Forged uh, Wedges. Um, the wedges I love, um, except for that lob wedge. I just need to learn how to hit it. I, I just don't know what I'm doing. Let's just be honest. I, I'm not trying to lie to anybody. It's a fine wedge. There's nothing wrong with the, the equipment. It's definitely me. Uh, my irons I love. Um, I actually had those irons validated, meaning uh, during a second fitting at a different company at TrueSpec, when I, where I got fitted for my driver, I actually started off by hitting my irons first, and even those fitters confirmed that those irons that I got fit for, they were fine for me, which again kind of blows my mind. Uh, that gets into a whole other discussion that we've t- had in the past about playing the right clubs for you. Uh, never in a million years did I think I'd be playing those clubs, but I, I love them. Um, apparently, they're fine for me. Uh, the only thing I uh, will admit that I'm missing out on is probably, you know, obviously the miss hits. They're not the thickest, most forgiving clubs in the world. But from a spin right perspective, um, from a distance perspective, ball flight, dispersion, all that good stuff, they seem to be fine. And so, um, you know, again, just learned a, a ton from that fitting as well, learned that I am a degree flat with my lofts. I never knew that. Straightened my hook out really well. So, uh, definitely would love to talk more about any fittings that you guys want to talk about. We can definitely do that in future episodes. All right, just a few more here. We've got one here from, uh, I've always wondered how to say this name. Is it Fupresti? F-U-Presti? Fupresti? I don't know, one of those. What sort of criminal punishment should we consider enacting for people that say Mexican food is not the best food? Excellent question. Mexican food is the best food, and as far as criminal punishment, um, death by burritoing. Whatever that means, whatever vision or depiction popped into your head when I just said death by burritoing, that's what we're going to go with. I'll just leave it at that. All right, here's another food question by... Ugh, what is this? A.K. La, La Witter. Ek La Witter. <laughs> These names. Um, is a hot dog a sandwich? And what does it ketchup go on? And what is the best condiment? And why is it ketchup? <laughs> All right. Number one, uh, the hot dog is a sandwich. Number two, what doesn't ketchup go on? Maybe, maybe trout. I would not put ketchup on trout. And what is the best condiment, and why is it ketchup? It is ketchup. I love ketchup. I abhor any ketchup haters, like my sister-in-law. <laughs> but it just goes well with so many things, except trout. Don't put it on trout. All right. We got one more here, and thank you again, folks, for your questions. Uh, go out and support the podcast as well before I get to this final question. Um Oh, and I also want to tell uh, if we've got any European listeners. I've got a little uh, little fun thing for you, too. Um, go out and support the podcast. Rate us five stars on iTunes. Leave us a review. I appreciate all y'all that have left reviews up to this point. 
So here's the final question from M. Ski. Adjustable drivers are the all are they all marketing hype? Does an amateur really truly benefit from the driver, especially if he never adjusts the dang thing? Great final question for this episode, and it's one that I referenced earlier. Are adjustable drivers all marketing hype? No, no, they aren't. They are not all marketing hype. Um, there are true benefits to owning an adjustable driver. Uh, one of the biggest benefits, say it with me, folks, is because you can get custom fit based on your swing preferences, tendencies, whatever, and you don't have to do a ton with uh, adjusting that club head. You could just go ahead. It's all right there. It's a movable thing. You just take the little wrench out and wing, bang, boom. You've got a driver specifically specified, specifically specified to you. Um, and it's probably a godsend for club fitters in general. I mean, it's just, you go to any club fitter now, they've got just big old drawer of club heads. They just pull that sucker out. They've got the adjustable hosel on, you know, whatever shaft system that they're using. They just slap that sucker on there and they can make adjustments on the fly. It cuts down time substantially. Now, What's really interesting is the second part of your question. Does an amateur truly benefit from the driver? Yes, it, this, they do. I'll say that again. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there are some companies that are producing drivers with non-adjustable heads. Um, BombTech is one, I believe. Um, I know Cleveland came out with one. Um, there's a few others that I'm forgetting off the top of my head. Uh, oh, the, the Wilson D300. I don't think that's got an adjustable head. Somebody keep me honest on that. I don't have it in my office right now, but I believe that is a set club. I'm trying to think if it is or not. I can't remember now. Holy cow, I'm freaking out. <laughs> no, I don't know. Corey, if you're listening, uh, let me know. Um, golfers can benefit from adjustable or non-adjustable. It doesn't really matter. It just depends on what is going to benefit you the most based on how you perform uh, in a ball launch monitor and on the course. Now, those are two very specific things. You can go into a controlled environment on a mat with a screen and a ball launch monitor and be the next Tiger Woods. <laughs> I mean, you can, you can hit the ball great. You can have the best numbers out there. But then when you, does that translate onto the course is really what the question is. Can you take that out and go to the course and, and duplicate what you did in the fitting? I don't know. You know, that's something that, that has yet to be seen. Um, the the little parenthetical here that you have in your question is probably the most important thing, especially if he never adjusts the dang thing. Well, I believe that you should not toy around with an adjustable setting all willy-nilly like because you're just going to do yourself a disservice. Case in point, I'll just use myself as an example. My current driver, which I was fit for, is set at 8.5 degrees. No, actually, it's set at 8. Eight degrees. I would have never set it that low. I would have never set that driver head that low. But it performed the best for me numbers-wise. I am not going to touch that thing. Uh, it, it is forever, as far as I, in my mind, that they could have welded that adjustable hosel closed or, or whatever. I'm never going to adjust that thing. There's no reason to. Somebody told me that and showed me, and I saw with my own eyes why this thing performed better than a 10 degree driver or a 9.5 or whatever. So if you go and buy an adjustable driver, you should not be 
toying around with the hosel. You shouldn't be doing that. Set it where you want it. Set it what performs best for you and leave it alone. So, as a quick recap for that three-part question, I guess. It was I bought my microphone. Sorry. Uh, yes. Or, or no, rather. Adjustable drivers are not all marketing hype. Um, do they truly benefit amateurs? Yes, they do. And about the adjusting, if they never adjust it, they're not supposed to. They're supposed to leave them alone. So... That's all for today, folks. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks so much to those of you who submitted questions to the thread. Once again, I'm talking about thehackersparadise.com. There is a thread in their membership forum called Golf Unfiltered Podcast. Ask me anything. I'm going to keep it going. I'm going to bump it up here after this episode, actually, to make uh, sure that people see it and to get more questions submitted. And once again, if you have any input that you'd like to provide or any arguments or disagreements or anything of that nature to the questions I provided today, please feel free to do so in that forum. Go out and follow me on Twitter, at Golf Unfiltered. Send me an email. Thank you to those of you who email me. I love the conversation. And before I go, I just thought and remembered I have a special discount for those of you who may be listening in the UK or the uh, uh, United Emirates. What is that? <laughs> United Arab Emirates, sorry. Uh, UAE, we'll just